chapter 4 this morning. I set up where my uh, page would be, and then I lost it. Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. Paul's writing a very bold letter to a church that he had planted because they had received Jesus as their Savior, and yet they had been fascinated by uh, religion, uh, by the law, by Pharisees, by people that looked holier than thou that came along after Paul and said, hey, you know, it's good that you're following Jesus, but don't you know that you've got to do all, all of these things too in order to be saved? And Paul, hearing that this was going on, was infuriated. Because the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus saves. Not Jesus and somebody else's help, but Jesus alone can save an individual from eternity separated from God because of our sins that we've committed. And so Paul is infuriated. He's upset. He's basically gone into this place, shared the good news And someone else has come along and said, well, the good news is great, but here's some better news when it's really not better news. Because the gospel that Paul shared with them was that only Jesus can save. And the gospel, I'm putting it in quotations because it's not the true gospel, that they came along afterwards to tell them was you can be saved as long as you do X, Y, and Z to add to what God has done for you. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's not good news. Because if, if it's dependent upon what I can add to what God's already done, then I'm just going to mess it up, you know? Um, if I go into the kitchen and make this wonderful meal, and then I, I say, you know what? The finishing touches need to be done by Lucy. Lucy's going to come in there, and she cooks all the time. She just uses Play-Doh. So she's going to take the meal that I made, which is probably actually mediocre, but I'm going to say it's this wonderful feast, and she's going to put Play-Doh on top of it and go, hey, is that better? And that's all we can add to salvation. We can put something else on top of it that really doesn't make it better. It's just something that we can add to it. It's never going to be good. It's going to be adding Play-Doh on in a magnificent meal. And so that's what Paul is telling them. He says, you want to follow these guys, that's fine. But what I want you to realize is that it's not actually good news. It's only dead religion. Do you know what religion means? We hear that word all the time. Religion is man's way of relinking or reconnecting with God. Trying to, it's a ladder trying to get to heaven. And so if we try to put a ladder to heaven, it's always going to fall short because you can't build a ladder tall enough. But the beauty is, is that Jesus is the bridge. He has become the ladder. He's the only one that can measure up to the height and the depth and the width of what we need in order to deliver us from ourselves. And so in Galatians chapter 4, Paul is co- continuing on this kind of doctrinal section of Galatians. And doctrine just means teaching. It's all it means. What we believe about God. And so in chapter 3, he said, if, by the deeds of the flesh, no man can be justified. No person can be made just as if they'd never sinned by doing things. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. It can only make us sweaty. And I don't know about you guys, but somebody comes to me and they're all sweaty and they're like, hey, look what I did. I'm like, take a shower and then tell me, right? You know, especially boys. Boys are the worst. You know, you get to a certain age and all of a sudden 
their their pores start. It's not just sweat anymore. It's also the, like this, like somebody broke open one of those uh, stink bombs on them, you know. And it's like, what in the world happened overnight? All of a sudden, you stink when you sweat, and that's what's happening. Paul says, you know, you can be justified by faith alone, through grace alone. We can only be saved by God's grace. We can only be justified by trusting in the one who can save us. And then he said in chapter 3 that if you want to trust in the law to deliver you from your sin, what you need to realize is it only brings a curse on you because it was never meant to deliver you from your sin. It was only meant to show you that you had sin. If anyone comes along and says, well, I don't sin. I don't need Jesus. I don't sin. They've never really considered the law of God, and that's his standard. It doesn't change because you got a certain last name. It doesn't change because you act a certain way in public, but not in private. It doesn't change. It judges without partiality. It doesn't go based on the outward opinion or appearance. It, goes, it judges the heart, and the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And so he says the law actually just brings a curse. But the beauty of it in verse 13 of chapter 3 is that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He, became, he took on our sin and was killed on the cross, bearing or carrying our sin on his shoulders. That's why he was killed, to kill our sin. So he took the curse that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So we testify that we are God's, and we know that because He's given us His Holy Spirit to reside within us. That's a sign that we're His, His sons. So that promise that God made through Abraham, the promise to bless the seed and to provide salvation through the seed of Abraham, was a promise that cannot be changed. Because it was a promise not based on what man had promised, but based on what God would accomplish. God promised it, and therefore he will make sure that it's fulfilled. And we talked about that, right? I make promises all the time, and I end up breaking them. But God never breaks a promise. So then the question last week became, what purpose then does the law serve? If God's given us his grace and he's given us the law, what purpose did the law serve? And he said in verse 22, the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. He says, verse 23, but before faith came, before Jesus showed up to provide a, a sacrifice for our sins to save us from ourselves, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. It's like when you leave home and you're leaving your children there and maybe you've got a babysitter. The babysitter is basically there to guard them, to protect them, to keep them from running off and getting into trouble, to keep them from sticking their finger in the light socket, whatever it might be. It's a guardian, someone to take charge over them in your place while you're gone. That's what the law was for. And not only that, but a guardian in this sense, the word there means a tutor. Or another word would be a school marm. Someone that prepares children to go to the next level. 
And in this case, he's going to go on with this metaphor talking about how we are children. And until Jesus came, we were kept under the law. Before faith came, we were kept under the law, under guard by the law, kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. So it was all to prepare us for the coming Messiah. The law was to prepare everyone for the Messiah who would save us from the curse of the law. Verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith in him. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So once faith came, we could trust in Jesus, we were brought to maturity. We no longer need a tutor. We can make decisions on our own. And so he says here in verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ. In other words, you're made whole. You're made mature. You're no longer living in the house of your parents. You're, you're out on your own and you can make decisions and you're accountable for them. But God has made us mature in Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have now put on Christ like a garment. We are now in Christ, clothed in robes of righteousness, not ours, but his. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's no difference anymore. We're all one. There's neither slave nor free. There, there were those who were slaves, still practically. There were those who were free, and many of them owned slaves. He said, no longer is there a line in the sand anymore. There's no us and them. If we are in Christ, we are all one. We all have the same rights given to us by what Jesus has done. And then he says, there is neither male nor female. And there was even back then, there was a distinction. And what he's saying is that though your roles are different in marriage, that you're all one in Christ. There's no one that's better than the other. We all have our place. And so, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What he's saying is, for those of you who think that you are heirs of the promise of salvation from God because you were born into the nation of Israel, or for those that think that you're an heir according to following all the rules of Israel, that's not how you get there. There are many people who are Jewish to this day that are not really followers of God because they are heirs according to their works, according to the law, not according to promise. The promise says, if I trust in Jesus, then I'm the Lord's and I can follow him and I will keep his commandments because I love him, not because I have to anymore. So he continues on with this idea of being a child and an heir. Verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, Now I say that the heir, he just said that we are all heirs according to the promise, and then he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. But he is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. So what I want to start with is today's chapter is basically Paul's explaining the Galatians' adoption. Now when I say he's explaining their adoption, it is implied that we're also explaining that we are adopted. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I know children that are adopted. And someone has not been able to take care of them for whatever reason. And then someone else came along and said, hey, 
We want to be your parents. We want to have guardianship over you. We want to raise you up in our home. We want to give you a place to live. We want to feed you. We want to send you to school. We want to take care of you. We want to discipline you. We want to love you. And so what God says first through the pen of Paul here is verse 1 through 3, he talks about what we were. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I have a story about what I was before Jesus got involved. And the reality is, if we are in Christ, we all started somewhere. We talked about that, right? So he says, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all. An heir to a throne or a kingdom or property or a family, he's going to inherit all that his parents had built up during their lifetime, right? Well, if they pass and he inherits it, but he's below the age that is listed, whatever it might be, if he's still a child, then he doesn't get to have it yet. There's a time there where even though he is the master of that property or that inheritance of whatever, there's a time there where he's not given legal responsibility over it because he's still just a kid, you know? If Stephen Persley III, his parents, God forbid, would pass and he would still be at the age he is right now and he was given basically everything that they have, there would be some issues legally because he's not at a legal age where he can take responsibility for those things. And so there's this interim period where he's basically the same, he says here, as a slave, though he's the master of all. In other words, He's under the stewardship of the master, but he, know, he can't take responsibility yet. Verse 2, but is under guardians and stewards. And that word guardian is the same word that's used in chapter 3. We just read about being, the law being a guardian or a tutor over us until Jesus came and brought us to maturity. So we start as children of God. We are made in his image. But then when Jesus came along... If we put our faith in him, we are made no longer children, but we're made sons. And the word for sons there, I didn't look up the word, but the son's word means mature sons who are able to take responsibility of our inheritance. And so we're appointed by the father at a certain time to take on the full responsibility. Even so, verse 3, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And that bondage was under the slavery of sin. We were born with the sin nature. There is not one child that is born into this world a lovely little non-sinner. We're all born wickedly, deceitfully evil. It's our nature. It's, it's who we are. We've inherited that through our parents, whether they're believers or not. We've inherited it from all the way from Adam and Eve. We have a sin nature. And so... Up to this point, there were rules and regulations to deal with our sin nature. Those are the elementary things. They're the basic fundamentals. They're the ABCs. Now, if we stay with the ABCs forever and you open up a book, say, say you stay in the basic elements and you open up a book, you would not read verse uh, 1 and say, now I say that the air, you would say N-O-W-I-S-A-Y. You would read the ABCs. You wouldn't see words there. You would see the basic elements. But what Paul's trying to tell them is that the law is the basic elements. It's the ABCs. 
But all of the ABCs, when they're put together into words in the Old Testament, they point to salvation. The law was never meant to save. It was only meant to build up a foundation where they'd be prepared to see that they needed a Savior. The law doesn't save. It only condemns. Paul's written that in other places. But Jesus Christ came and he fulfilled the law to the T, kept all the feasts, kept all the laws, did everything that pleased the Father, and because of that, he has the riches that you referred to in Ephesians 1.7. The riches of his grace are there because he is full of grace and mercy. He's the only one that can make the payment for your and my sin. He's the only one that has a bank account big enough, full of grace, to be able to pay for it all. When we sing Jesus paid it all, there are so many that are like, well, I don't have that big of a debt. But if you've broken one rule of the whole law, that debt deserves death. And Jesus said, I'll take it. I'll take your death. And then he was nailed to the tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. But the beauty of that is once he was nailed to the tree, it wasn't over. Because he's defeated sin, the power of sin, the pull of sin. We no longer have to say yes to sin. We can say no. No, thank you. I'll have none because of the Holy Spirit living in us. But also, he didn't just defeat sin, he also defeated death. And I know that because he proved it this morning when I was reading in John chapter 11, where Lazarus was, he died because of sickness. Because of sin in the world, sickness came in and Lazarus died. And they came and told Jesus, hey, this this man whom you love, he's dead. And it says there that Jesus, even though he loved Lazarus and he loved Lazarus' family, he stayed where he was for two days. And he said to them, he said, look, this sickness is not unto death. He said, this sickness, this death that's occurred is so that I may be glorified. So you may see that I have the power to raise the dead. I'm going to take care of this. And so two days after he's told this, he goes, he gets there. And it says that Lazarus was in the tomb three days. And Jesus standing there explained to them, it's not over yet, I got this. And then it was Martha that came to him and then Mary comes later and she says, it's one of them, basically says, look, if you'd come earlier, he wouldn't be dead. You could could have healed him. And Jesus basically said, "I, I can take care of death too. So then he goes out to where Martha was, and he stands there. And, and then they run out of the house, and they're thinking, oh man, she's going to the tomb to weep some more. And that happens, right? There's times where we have loved ones that we, you know, we can't see them anymore, so we go to the last place we saw them. We, we go to the place where they're resting till the resurrection. We go there to the, to the graveside, and we, we just think about them. We miss them so much. And that's what they thought that she was doing, but she was going with Jesus. And so Jesus said, roll the stone away. And the family was like, no. Don't open the stone. It's going to stink in there. It's been a couple of days. He's already started to decompose. And Jesus prayed to the Father. He said, Father, I, don't, I thank you for hearing me. And I'm not praying this so that you'll hear me. You always hear me. But I'm praying this so that they'll know that it was you that did this. And then he said, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus walked out alive. They had to take his grave claws off. They had wrapped him up in grave claws with, uh, with spices and 
to make sure he didn't stink while they were looking at him, you know. He was embalmed, essentially. So he brought him out. He's, he's Lord over death. And so, verse 4, <clears throat> Galatians 4, verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of the time had come, when everything was just in place, when the way had been prepared, Jesus came on the scene. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. And the word there for born of a woman means made in woman. Essentially fulfilling what God said he would do in Genesis 3, where he said there's going to be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Because she was tempted and she fell. So God said, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring forth a son, born of a woman, made of a woman. Usually you need a man and a woman to make a child, right? But this was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary. So uh, that would definitely be a sign that this was something God did. There wasn't two people involved, right? (laughs) But he says, born under the law. So this is a son born into the nation of Israel as a son of the law. Somebody that was born under the rituals and everything else. To redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So in verse 4 and 5, this is, we, we talked about in verse 1 through 3, what we were. And then verse 4 and 5 is what God did. And the beauty of it is he redeemed us. And the word redeem, again, shows up in this book, means to set free by paying a price. We already talked about that. God has set us free from the debt that we owed because of our sin against him. He paid the price. All to him I owe. But he did this, he paid the price for the sole purpose of our redemption. To buy us back from slavery. To buy us back from the law. To buy us back from everything we had committed that was owed against us. So then verse 6 and 7. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, therefore you are no longer a slave, but now you're a son. And if you're a son then you are an heir of God through Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul asked them the question, he said, this only do I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? You believed and therefore it was given to you. So in the same way, he says, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son, the Holy Spirit, into your hearts crying out, Abba, Father. And that word Abba in the Aramaic actually means Daddy. You wouldn't call anyone else's father that, only your own. My, my daughter calls me Daddy. It's intimate. It's close. It's something that means way more than, hey, there's my dad, or there's my, my father. You know, you hear people say that, but if, when your child is young and they call you Daddy, it's, there's something special about it. It's like they have a specific name they call you that they don't call anybody else. And in the same way, we have that relationship with our Father who is in heaven, our Daddy. And at any point, He wants to hear from us. He wants us to call out to Him. He wants us to need Him. He wants us to talk to Him about the things we're scared about. But because His Spirit has been given to us, not only do we call Him Father, but we want to. We want to have that intimacy with Him. And and it's because His Spirit is living in us. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but now you're a son. You've been given a new nature. 
than an heir of God through Christ. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not an heir to much. I, I, I'm not going to inherit this big, huge, you know, I'm not descending from somebody that was a king or a business owner or, you know, and no doubt we've probably got more than most, but the reality is, is at the best I can inherit a bunch of stuff I'm going to have to take care of. But as an heir of God, we're inheriting something that can't be corrupted. It won't rust. It won't need another oil change. It won't get a flat on the road. <laughs> it won't need a new roof the next year. I'm inheriting something that I don't have to maintain. I'm inheriting Jesus and his kingdom. And so the reality is, just as Jesus is going to be the ruler, the Lord of all practically here on earth as he is in heaven, we're going to rule and reign with him. We're going to be a part of that kingdom. So what we were, as we were children in bondage, we were enslaved to sin and to the law. What God did was he redeemed us. He changed the whole thing. He bought us back at a price. And then what we are now is sons and heirs of God. Or daughters, if you want to put it that way. But we're heirs, each one of us, according to what Jesus has done. In Romans chapter 8, verse 12, Paul speaks about this adoption. He says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, then you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God... These are the sons of God. How do you know if you're a son of God? Are you willing to be led by the Spirit of God? When God says to you, are you sure you want to do this? Are you going to yield and say, you know what? I'm a son of God. I'm, I've got his magnet on the side of my truck. I represent him now. I want to do what pleases him just like Jesus did. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. Again, he says, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have this peace within us that passes all understanding, helping us, reminding us daily, hey, you're not, you're not a, a slave to that anymore. You're mine. You don't have to fear. And so he says, and if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs, with Christ, everything that Christ inherits from his Father, guess who else inherits it? Us. And so he says, Heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So that's what God has done. That's who we are, no matter what anyone else says. Childhood requires rules and regulations. Where there's a strong love relationship, however, there's no more need for those rules and regulations because love fulfills the law. John chapter 14. I'm just going to turn there real quick. <clears throat> John 14, verse 15. Jesus said this to his disciples. He says, if you love me, then keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. So he says, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I'm going to send a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will help you 
keep the commandments. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither, neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you and help you. And I love this because when Jesus gives a command, he gives the ability and the power to fulfill that command. So, verse 8. Because of all that Paul has just told them, he's told them who they are, what God did, and what we are now, that Jesus has come in and gotten involved. So now in verse 8, he laments their regression. You guys should know that Jesus has done it all for you. So why are you going back? You were slaves. God has made you sons instead. Why would you want to go back to what you were? Why would you want to go back? You know, maybe we don't struggle with going back to following the law. Maybe we struggle with going back to what we were before Christ. And saying, well, you know, my good outweighs my bad. I, was, I mean, I'd struggle with that. I had a better day today than I did yesterday. Maybe God's more pleased with me. That's not how it works. Jesus paid it all. Verse 8, Paul writes, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you served those which by nature are not gods. But now, after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. He says, the law is weak. It's the fundamental elements. It can only diagnose your problems. It can't cure them. Here's what happens. Here's what happens. God has redeemed you, but you still got stuff you struggle with. We all do. But what they were doing is saying, well, you know what? I still struggle with this sin, so I'll make a, a couple of rules, and I'll follow these rules, and then I won't struggle with those sins anymore. <laughs> right? Well, I'll just read my Bible exactly at this time, and then I won't have a problem with this, with this lust or with this anger issue or with this. And we, we make our own rules to try and deal with our sin nature rather than realizing that God has already put to death our sin nature and that since Jesus has paid it all, I can now trust him to give me the power over sin. He's given me grace. I don't need to add rules. So Paul is lamenting that they were going back to rules instead. In verse 10, the acts that showed their regression were outward appearance of religion. No inward change. They, they were going, what they would do is they would say, you know what? We follow Jesus, but we also need to keep all these feasts. And at the time of Jesus, they were still keeping the feast. They would go to the temple at the time of Passover. They would sacrifice a lamb. They would uh, celebrate the, the supper. They would um, go at the time of tabernacles. There were all these feasts that they had to keep to show that they were following God. But because Jesus fulfilled the law, they no longer had to do those things. Those were just things that were to point to what Jesus would do for them. And we still have people today that do that. You know, whether it's the Mormons, they came to my door the other day and they, they were basically telling me, well, you know, they're, they're married in the temple and then that gets them more favor with God. Because I asked them, I said, do you know if you're going to heaven or not? They said, well, we'll be in one of the heavens. 
And then they referred to Paul's writings about the third heaven, and they made this kind of weird correlation to the fact that depending on how good you live, you'll be in the first, the second, or the third, which is the best heaven. Well, that's not what the scripture's talking about. Because in that particular passage, he's talking about the heavens. So there's the first heaven. There's the, basically the atmosphere that surrounds us that goes up to space. Then there's like a dividing line there. The second heaven is the galaxy and space itself. It's got all the planets in it, the stars, multiple galaxies, probably way further than we realize. And then there's the third heaven, which is not a physical place. It's, it's where God reigns and rules. It's where his throne is in his presence. And so they, they have this idea that if you do certain things, and there's a list, you know, there's, I'm sure there's all kinds of weird stuff that I don't, I don't even know about. But if you do all those things, then you can get to the best heaven, not just secondary heaven. But the beauty of Christianity, I told him, I said, that's not good news. The good news is that we get to be sons of God. We get to be in his presence we get to spend eternity with him. There's going to be a wedding feast where we are joined to our husband. Man, that's weird for us, right? But we're going to be joined to our husband, Jesus Christ. And the beauty is we're going to sit at the table. We're going to eat dinner with him. We're going to be drinking the best wine that there ever was. We're going to be celebrating that our husband paid it all so that we could be married to him. And they don't know if they're going to be in the presence of God or not in heaven. The Catholics also have certain things that you have to do. You have to be, uh, follow the rites or the rituals. That you have to be baptized, right? It's rough on the thief on the cross who wasn't baptized, but they, they got to be baptized. And then uh, I'm trying to think of some of the other things they have to do. Um, married in the church. Um, uh, confession. Confession is one of the things they have to do. They have to go to a priest. They have to confess their sins to him, do so many Hail Marys, you know, all these things that I don't see them. And what Jesus says is, I am your high priest. I am the resurrection and the life. And so we don't have to be confined by these rules that men come up with. God has already laid it out. So in verse 8 through 11, Paul's basically, he's just saying, why are you going to go back? And then in verse 12 through 18, he seeks their affection. Verse 12, he reminds them, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You've not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I originally preached the gospel to you at first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, did not, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, that you would have even plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now that I've shared the truth with you and told you that these Judaizers are actually not teaching you the truth, he says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? We have people that we love and we would do anything for but if they come to us and share with us some place or some way that we're not being obedient to the Lord, many times we basically go, well, you don't even like me anymore. When in all reality, love is willing to take a risk like that and to correct us and to discipline us. 
Verse 17, they zealously court you. Who's the they? He's talking about the Judaizers. They zealously try to gain your affection. They try to court you. Where have we heard that word? I've been watching uh, uh, Andy Griffith's show, right? And they go dating. They're courting. I don't know if they ever used the word. But back in those times, right, they'd use the word court. You'd try to gain somebody's affection. You would take them something nice or you'd, you know, ask them out on a date or just spend time with them. So to court them means that these Judaizers were trying to court them. They're trying to gain their favor, but they're doing it for no good. They want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. They want to pull you out of the body of Christ from following Jesus so that you can serve them instead. But it is good to be zealous and a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. And then he says this, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. He's afraid for them. He says, God's given you his spirit, and he's delivered you from sin. Are you going to go back to trying to save yourself, or are you going to let God save you? So you see, their, their zeal for the law was actually blinding them to the freedom and the truth that was found in a relationship with Jesus. Do you want to follow a bunch of rules, or do you want to follow a person? Many people would rather follow rules, because that's easier when it's really not, because it doesn't deliver you. But if you'll follow the person of Jesus, he will deliver you. John chapter 12. I was reading this this morning as well. In John chapter 12, verse 42, Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead, okay? So everyone starts following him because can you imagine if somebody came to Arcadia Valley and raised somebody out of a grave and they walked away and they were fine. All of a sudden you might believe what they were saying. Hey, this guy's kind of powerful. Let's go follow him. And the Pharisees didn't like that because they were losing their power over the people. They wanted to oppress them. They wanted to be seen in public as these high-standing men. And what it says there in verse 42 of John, 4, John 12 is, Nevertheless, even among the rulers... Many believed in Jesus. The rulers were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these people that were against the Lord. Basically, because of what they saw Jesus do, raising someone from the dead, they started to doubt their own religion. They're like, man, maybe maybe we're kind of blinded to what Jesus, maybe he is the Messiah. And they start to believe in him. But here's the deal. Because of the Pharisees, they did not talk about it publicly. Because of the opinion of these Pharisees, whom they regarded highly, they were not willing to confess what they were starting to believe, that Jesus probably was the Messiah and that they needed to follow him. It says, because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to lose their position. They didn't want to be looked down upon. They didn't want to be made fun of. They wanted to still be popular, whatever you want to call it. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. So 
So here's the deal. Here's the, what I think is the main problem with the Galatian church. They cared more about what people thought of them than what God thought of them. Maybe you've struggled with that in your, your life at some point. I do. We ought to be pleasers of God rather than pleasers of men. And if we will make that our focus, if we'll realize how real Jesus is and how much, like Paul, how much he loves us. Paul's reminding them of their affection for him, but then in the next section, if you'll hit the next slide, Stephen, <clears throat> Paul reveals his heart for them. Paul's heart for the Galatian people was not because they always treated him well. At one point, it seems like they really treated him well. But then at a certain point, they started hating Paul. And Paul said, I still love you. Because when I hated Jesus, he still loved me. He still saved me. He still was willing to knock me down on the road to Damascus and tell me I was living in sin. That I was actually persecuting him. And I love that because love's not afraid to take a risk. Jesus loved Paul so much that he, he called him out on his sin and, and took a risk. And because of that, Paul repented. These Galatians need to repent. They are saved, but they are living in sin. Does that make sense? They've made the opinion of man more important than the opinion of God. And because of that, they started following men rather than God himself. So Paul reveals his parental heart for the Galatian believers in 19 through 20. He says, My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. Paul, when he came to the Galatian church, he came there because he had affliction physically. And while he was there, he shared what he had to offer, which was Jesus and Jesus alone. And they took care of him, but it also cost him a lot to share the truth with them. Verse 20, he says, I would like to be present with you now. And I want to change my tone. I know I've been harsh with you. And I would like to change my tone. But for now, I have some doubts about you. And so I'm trying to sternly warn you that this way that you're following zealously, it only leads to heartache and pain. It leads to confusion. Paul spent great effort to deliver the truth to them that gave them spiritual rebirth. He remembers the travail. Moms, you remember giving birth to your children. You care for them so much because it's already cost you so much physical pain to bring them into the world. You, you want to take care of them. You, you don't want to fear for them. He, he's like a, Paul's like a mother looking forward to holding her newborn child. He hopes for the child to be born whole and healthy and not stillborn. Paul could have went through all this effort to birth these new believers and then because of somebody else fascinating them with a system of religion, they could be born stillborn, never effective, never to find their full potential as believers. So he says, be careful. He longs to be near them and to encourage them once again to continue in the same grace of God that saved them in the first place. And that's, that's the key of Galatians. You were saved by grace, God's unmerited riches given for you, through faith, by trusting in what God has done for you. And the way that we are to continue being saved, practically, day in and day out, is by still trusting in that grace that saved us. Continuing in grace. So that when we mess up, we don't go, well, let's follow some rules. We go, Jesus, please forgive me again. That forgiveness you gave me at first, 
I still need to draw from it. Oh, precious is the flow. It's a continual flow. Jesus said, he who believes in me will never thirst again because out of him will pour rivers of living water. That living water includes forgiveness daily. So let me ask you, are you continuing in grace or are you making rules? And if you're making rules, tear them up and burn them and throw them away. Jesus didn't save you to follow rules. He saved you for a relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.